Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. All right, so my talk is titled Leaving Loneliness, Building Friendship, and Fostering Human Flourishing. I'll discuss how pursuing a meaningful vision of human flourishing and building good friendships combats loneliness and helps us to flourish. The talk will focus on friendship, what it is, its benefits, impediments to it that take the form of vices, and the virtue that most aids the building of friendship and the building of bridges in a community. Dr. Robert Waldinger is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which followed men from their teenage years at Harvard into their 90s. It's still underway and is one of the longest studies of its kind. In summarizing the results, as reported by the Harvard Gazette, Waldinger said this, loneliness kills. It's as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. He also said, the surprising finding of the study is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health. And later says, taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too. That, I think, is the revelation of the study. The main lesson here is that the long-term he- that long-term health is greatly influenced by the health of our relationships. Health is an important ingredient in human flourishing, although it is not flourishing itself. We can be healthy and still not be flourishing. You probably don't need a study to tell you that loneliness isn't great for you, though. Uh, but the study helps us to appreciate the importance of friendship to flourishing. I propose that there is a connection between a person's notion of human flourishing and his or her notion of friendship. Inadequate views of human flourishing can lead to inadequate views of friendship. If we don't get flourishing right, we may not get friendship right either. But we should care about getting both right. I'll now discuss some examples of inadequate accounts of flourishing and friendship and then turn to what I take to be the best accounts of flourishing and friendship. It's evident that we all want to flourish. We all want a good life. But it isn't obvious what such a life consists in. So we must think carefully about what it is and how to get it. To get us thinking, let's go back to ancient Greece and the philosophy of Aristotle. Aristotle was a fourth century philosopher who lived during the golden age of Greece. He was the student of Plato, who was the student of Socrates. He wrote learned treatises on a great number of subjects. These treatises were so insightful and penetrating that some of them exert significant influence up to this day. 
even if you think he's mistaken about the good life he's worth paying attention to. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle observes that every person acts for an end, that is a goal. For example, eating dinner after this talk may be an end or goal of yours, at least if you didn't get pizza. <laughs> you'll, have to fin- you'll have to choose various means to reaching your goal of eating dinner, such as figuring out where to go, how to get there, and what to eat. If you're asked, why are you going to dinner? Answers you might give include, I enjoy eating, I, want, I need energy, or I want to hang out with friends. So eating dinner isn't merely an end of yours. It's also a means to something else, such as gaining energy or spending time with friends. We pursue means and ends all the time. The ends we pursue are sometimes also means to further ends. Let me illustrate by considering a series of questions. Suppose I ask you, why are you taking courses at MIT? You might say, because you want a degree from here. I then ask, why do you want this degree? And you might say, because you want a good job. And then I ask, why do you want a good job? And you might say, so that you can support yourself and perhaps a family. And then I ask you, why do you want that? And at this point, you may get a little puzzled. If you're like my students, then you'll give answers such as this. I want a good life. I want to be happy. And if I were to ask you, why do you want that? You would find that there's not another answer to give. And you would say, I just want that. We've reached the final end, the end of all your other ends. Aristotle calls this the chief good. Aristotle observes that there has to be something we treat as the final end or chief good, something that is not a means to anything else, but is simply an end. If we don't have a final end in mind, we would never begin anything, he says. Furthermore, Aristotle thinks that human beings desire everything else for the sake of their final end. He says that we all agree in general about what the final end is. It's a good life, a flourishing life, or happiness, which he calls eudaimonia. Everyone desires this. Everyone desires to live his or her best life. If we all want happiness, then one of the most important questions we need to answer is, in what does happiness consist? What is the best life to live? If you ask different people the question, you'll get different answers. Someone might change his answer depending on what's going on in his life. If he's sick, for example, he might think the answer is health. Aristotle considers different answers before offering his own. I'll mention two of them, uh, two of the answers he rejects, and then discuss their potential implications for how a person views friendship. The first answer to the question, what is a good life, is a life of enjoyment. On this view, the best life is one with the greatest sensory pleasure. For example, enjoying good food and drink, having stimulating experiences, having Instagram-worthy vacations, and so on. Aristotle acknowledges the goodness of pleasure or enjoyment, but he says that a life of sensory enjoyment is not enough for us. He says it's a life fit for cows, but not human beings. What does he mean? If we were to ask what makes for a happy cow, we'd probably say that the best cow life requires food, drink, shelter, the comforting presence of other cows, and making baby cows. That's enough for a cow. 
But a human being could have ready access to the pleasures of food, drink, shelter, society, and sex, and still be unhappy, unfulfilled. While these pleasures have their place, and our, sen- and our sensory pleasures are greater in scope than a cow's, Aristotle's cl- Aristotle claims that to live, live for sensory pleasure alone is to live as if the cow's best life is our own. But we're not cows, and their good life is not ours. Consider how we might view friends if we held this view. Suppose we lived for sensory enjoyment, and we ordered everything we did to gaining the most enjoyment we could. On this view, it would be tempting to view friends as playing a vital role in our happiness through being enjoyable to us. We might value them merely as a means to the joy they bring to us in our lives. If they ceased to bring joy to us, we would move on to find other, more enjoyable friends. But I submit this is a shallow form of friendship that will, like the vision of happiness as enjoyment, leave us unfulfilled and not the kind of people that would be good friends. Of course, it's a good thing to enjoy your friends, but we shouldn't care about our friends merely because they bring us pleasure or enjoyment. A second account of the good life holds that the best life is being wealthy. Aristotle recognizes the goodness of wealth, but he says that wealth cannot be the final end, for wealth is clearly desired as a means to something else. People want wealth to buy houses, cars, clothes, entertainment, travel, education, etc. Wealth is not desired for its own sake or as a final end. Therefore, it cannot be what happiness ultimately consists in. This may strike you Uh, a a surprise, given it appears that many people order their life around accumulating wealth. Some wealth or another means of access to the goods it can buy is necessary for a good life. We need food, clothes, and shelters to survive. We need a suitable education to thrive. Usually, money is the means of securing these things, and so we rely on money to some extent. But the best life requires much more than having the money to meet those needs as we can see in the lives of the many unhappy, wealthy people. We cannot treat money, which is a means to certain ends, as the end of our life. How might we view friends on this view? If our life or lives were ordered around accumulating money or what money can buy, we would be tempted to view our friends as useful to us in advancing our careers and securing greater wealth. We might value them as mere, merely as a means to the wealth they help us to secure. But I submit this is a shallow form of friendship too. It will, like the view that wealth will make us happy, leave us personally and socially unfulfilled and not the kind of people that would be good friends. That's not to say that our friends should never be useful to us, but we shouldn't care about our friends merely because they are useful to us in getting what we want. Many people might live with a combination of these two views. They take sensory pleasure to be the highest and wealth is the most important means to achieving a life of sensory pleasure and they only pursue friendships of pleasure and usefulness. Before considering Aristotle's own account of human flourishing, I'll now discuss loneliness. What is loneliness? It's not simply being alone. It's not solitude. Solitude is a state that can be very fruitful for contemplation, prayer, creative activity, study, and more. 
it's important, that is, solitude is important for our flourishing that we can enjoy it. To do so requires us to have a certain degree of peace within us and, within our, uh, and with ourselves so that we do not always seek to escape from solitude. But I'll understand loneliness to be distress at a perceived lack of meaningful connection to others. On this account, we can feel loneliness when we are physically alone or in a room full of people. We can even feel loneliness when we have friends, but those friendships themselves lack the meaningful connection we need. This suggests that there are different kinds of friendship. Some are deeper than others, and that we need those deeper friendships. I submit that friendships that are based solely on mutual enjoyment or mutual uh, benefit will not provide the remedy to the deepest forms of loneliness. Insofar, insofar as those shallow friendships result from an inadequate view of human flourishing, to combat loneliness, we must reject such views. What we need is an adequate account of flourishing and good friendships. And to develop a more adequate account, let's turn to what Aristotle claims about flourishing and about good friendships. What is flourishing for Aristotle? Aristotle understands the good of something to depend on the kind of thing it is. So, the good of a human being will depend on what a human being is, the good of a cow will depend on what a cow is, and the good of a tomato will depend on what a tomato is. The good of a human being will differ from the good of the cow or the tomato. A good tomato life is to grow, bear fruit, ripen, and then reproduce itself via its seeds. At least in our garden, the tomato is also good for my kids to enjoy, and they pick and eat it. But in order to answer the question, what is a good human life, Aristotle's first step is to ask, what is a human being? For three reasons, if we can figure out what a human being is, then we'll be able to figure out what makes for a good human being, and so what makes a good human life. To answer what makes a good human life, Aristotle claims in general, things flourish when they perform their characteristic activity well. For example, playing the guitar is the characteristic activity of a guitar player. To play the guitar well is to flourish or to be good as a guitar player. What's the characteristic activity of the human being? Aristotle argues that it's the activity of using our reason. By reason, we come to know important truths and make choices that transcend our instincts. Our reason is what makes us distinct from the other animals, despite their impressive cognitive powers. Our reason is what brings a governing unity to the use of our other capacities and to our lives. We typically identify more with our reason and choices based on reason than on our immediate desires and emotions. Recall the last time you broke a diet out of an impulsive decision. If you berated yourself afterward, wasn't it because you identify more with your deliberate rational choice than your impulsive desire? If the activity of reason is the human characteristic activity, then we flourish as human beings when we use our reason well. Using our reason well includes understanding things, making good choices, and fostering reasonable emotional responses regarding the situations and people we encounter and the actions we pursue. Aristotle calls these activities that are in accord with reason, and he calls the habits that dispose us to activities in accord with reason virtues. Virtues are good habits of thinking, choosing, and emotionally responding that are essential to human flourishing. They make us able to do reasonable things reliably, easily, and with pleasure, or at least without pain. 
Aristotle argues that a good life is a life characterized by such virtuous activity and that this will be done with friends. Aristotle argues that his account can explain what's plausible in the other accounts while avoiding their weaknesses. He claims his account will lead to an overall enjoyable life, although enjoyment is not its goal. For a person who gains pleasure from doing virtuous activity will enjoy much of what she does. Furthermore, she will be free from the significant internal psychological conflict and pain that characterizes the unvirtuous. Aristotle claims that virtuous activity may require some measure of wealth depending on the circumstances. For example, practicing the virtue of generosity through hosting a dinner party for friends requires you to possess wealth beyond meeting your most basic needs. Finally, Aristotle's account is applicable to many different states of life. A life characterized by virtuous activity could be lived out as a business person, stay-at-home parent, author, musician, engineer, computer scientist, and so on. All could lead such a life. The wealthy and the unwealthy could walk such a path. Those with power and public influence and those without could do so. They all must live a life of virtuous activity with friends, but in the circumstances in which those virtues, but the circumstances in which those virtues are exercised will differ according to the individual. What is friendship? Friends are vital for our flourishing because we are social animals who need others for good lives. Aristotle's basic notion of friendship is that it's a relationship characterized by mutual goodwill of which both parties are aware that's based on some likeness between them. He argues there are three kinds of friendship. The first are friendships of utility, which are based on mutual benefit. The second are friendships of pleasure, which are based on mutual pleasure. The third are complete or virtuous friendships, which are based on mutual love for the other, for his or her own sake. That is, for his character or who she is or he is as a person. In this friendship, there is a likeness of character between the friends. Aristotle notes some similarities and differences between these three kinds of friendship. Friendships of pleasure or utility are not necessarily bad, but they are incomplete friendships. The good and the bad have them. They're not necessarily long-lasting. They're quick and easy to form and dissolve, and they're possible with many. By contrast, only the good have complete friendships. Complete friendships are long-lasting. They are slower and more difficult to form and dissolve, and they are rarer and possible with only a few. In summary, the fullest and most complete kind of friends are those we care about for their own sake and not merely because they are pleasant or useful to us. We say to these friends, I love you for who you are as a person, not merely because I enjoy doing things with you or because our relationship is mutually beneficial. Again, it's not that the friends cannot also be pleasing and useful to us, but these are not the basis for complete friendship. Such friendships depend on both people pursuing a genuinely good life and forming a character that's growing in virtue. Such friends want to be with each other. I'll call these good friends. It's the good friend who will sacrifice his own pleasure or benefit for the sake of his friend. Aristotle writes that for um, his friend, a good friend will sacrifice, this is quoting, money, honors, and in general, uh, the goods for which people compete, procuring for himself what is noble. In fact, he says, she will even be willing to die for her friend. 
If we wanted to summarize Aristotle's view of flourishing then, or living a good life, or happiness, it's that it is a life characterized by virtuous activity with good friends. Notice that the account of human flourishing built on virtuous activity fits well with the account of human friendship based on love for the other person's own goodness as a person. Fundamentally, what we are living for makes a difference for the content and direction of our character. If my life is oriented toward pursuing what is genuinely good in itself, then I will be both attracted to and attractive to those who are also pursuing what is good. We are ultimately living what we are ultimately living for shapes the persons we become. And the person we are determines what kind of friend we will be and what kind of friends we will attract. You might be worried at this point. You might think to yourself, uh, to leave loneliness, I need good friends. But to have good friends, I need to be flourishing through virtuous activity. But I'm not virtuous. Am I stuck for a life of loneliness or with a life of loneliness forever and doomed to unhappiness? How can I form good friendships given where I am at? Can those friends help me to grow in virtue even where I lack it? It's arguable that Aristotle might give a gloomy answer to these questions, but I think there is reason for hope. I think good friendships do not require both parties to be fully virtuous, even if they do require that both parties share a reasonably similar vision of human flourishing. If one person is ultimately living to acquire wealth and another is seeking to become good and to do good, then I doubt they will reciprocate the love needed for a complete friendship. However, if both parties are seeking to become good and strive for virtue, then I think they can have a complete friendship and help one another along that way. In summary, good friends help us to become good. I'll mention some of the benefits of good friends here, and then I'll discuss one of them in greater detail um, when I turn to the virtue that fosters friendship and, and the vices that undermine friendship. Aristotle discusses some of these benefits, and an author named Paul Waddell discusses more. And drawing from the both, then I'll list some of the benefits of having a good friend. Friends help us to grow in love. Friends help us to know ourselves, especially our strengths and weaknesses. They encourage us to keep our eye on the goal that we are living for and by accompanying us on the journey. They provide companionship during the storms and the triumphs of life. They help us to avoid mistakes, especially when we're young. They increase our capacity to think and to act in doing great and noble deeds, especially in middle age. And they help us to finish work we've begun that we cannot finish, especially when we are old. I'll now say more especially about how friends help us to grow in love. And for the next part of the talk on virtues and vices related to friendship, we'll include St. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval philosopher and theologian. For Aristotle and Aquinas, happiness goes beyond pleasure and wealth as well as honor and health. It must be a life that befits and fulfills our nature as rational and social beings. But for Aquinas, unlike Aristotle, virtuous activity with friends in this life alone cannot perfectly fulfill us. We will still have trouble and face disappointment and death here. There will always be some reasonable desires left unfulfilled, even in the best of lives here. If we are to be perfectly fulfilled, Aquinas says, we must enjoy everlasting and perfect virtuous activity with friends where God is the first and best friend that we know and love forever in eternity. The virtue most needed for friendship is love. Aristotle writes, since friendship consists more in loving than in being loved, 
It appears that loving is the virtue of friends. To be a good friend, you must love the other person, as we said, for his or her own sake, rather than simply because they're pleasant or useful. In the Christian tradition, to love a person for his own sake is called charity. Charity centrally refers to the love for God for his own sake that God gives us by grace. Hence, Aquinas writes, it's evident that charity is the friendship of man for God, or the friendship love for God. This love overflows into the love of neighbor. For Aquinas, to love someone is to will their good. This is sometimes called benevolence, which means to will the good. So for our purposes, we'll think of charity as the disposition to will the good of another for his or her own sake. Notice this makes an act of charity a voluntary act. It's not the emotion of love, although that may accompany it. In a complete friendship, there's a mutual attraction to the other due to their character. Loving a person for the kind of person they are helps us to grow in charity by helping us to focus on someone other than ourselves. And through meeting the demands of the friendship, especially through personal sacrifice for the sake of the friend. To grow in charity, we must also expand the scope of our charity to include everyone. Every human being, as a human being, deserves a basic charity. To will the highest good for a person is to will their ultimate flourishing. And this is to will that they too would have a life of virtuous activity. Such a will is necessary for complete friendship, but we ought also to will the good of those who are not our friends. Why? We have charity for ourselves. We will our own good for its own sake. We want a good life for ourselves. But they are human beings like us, willing the good for themselves. And like us, their flourishing consists in virtuous activity with friends. Hence, they're relevantly like us, and we ought to treat them with the same basic good will with which we treat ourselves. Now, let's look at two vices contrary to charity. What is a vice? Vices are unfulfilling habits that contribute to unhappiness. Vices are formed by repeated bad choices, such as choosing something wrong, failing to do what is right, failing to correct some unreasonable emotional response, and so on. Vices make it easier for us to make bad choices and to respond poorly to situations, contributing to self-deception and so undermining our own good and the goods of others. The vice we'll focus on first um, that undermines being a good friend is spiritual apathy which is also called sloth or sloth. Apathy means without pathos or to lack love or concern. In uh, his work on evil, Thomas Aquinas defines spiritual apathy as a habit of sadness or pain at a spiritual and interior good. Let's unpack this definition. This sadness or pain is not simply emotional, though it may be bad, but involves a tendency to deliberately withdraw from such goods when one should not. A spiritual, and inter, spiritual and interior goods, in contrast with material goods, are not seen, tasted, or touched. They're goods such as knowledge and friendship. You can see the effects of knowledge and friendship, but you can't see the knowledge itself, although you can see the book. Nor can you see the friendship itself, although you can see the friend. Knowledge and love for a friend are interior to us. Spiritual apathy is a disordered avoidance of and sadness at such goods due to a lack of proper love for them. Since spiritual goods such as knowledge and friendship are crucial to happiness, um, spiritual apathy is a significant cause of unhappiness. In her excellent book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung calls spiritual apathy, fittingly, I think, resistance to the demands of love. 
There can be various sorts of spiritual apathy, but Aquinas focuses on one kind of apathy, apathy about love for God, whose friendship is the ultimate source of happiness. But I'm gonna focus on apathy about love for human friends. The spiritually apathetic person is saddened by or withdraws from his love for a friend or what that love requires. He doesn't care enough for the friendship. But how is one saddened by a friendship? A person is saddened because the friendship is seen as bad in being an impediment to something else that's desired. When I'm apathetic about my love for a friend, it may be because what love requires of me gets in the way of my own comfort or plans or desires, which I care about more, in this case, than my friendship. The apathetic person is saddened because she thinks the friendship imposes a burden on her. For example, love for a spouse requires commitment and willingness to change. If a man doesn't love his spouse enough, then that commitment and change will be burdensome and so bring a certain sadness or even resentment. The apathetic are saddened primarily due to a lack of love and not simply because they are averse to the work it requires. They fail to cultivate love as they ought. When Aquinas speaks of sadness, he has in mind more than just the emotion of sadness. Sadness also refers to a freely willed withdrawal from something. It manifests itself as a desire and choice to avoid what love requires. This choice to withdraw from love or the choice not to foster that love are choices for which I'm responsible and contribute to the emotions of sadness we've discussed. So how, oh yeah, and how does spiritual apathy contribute to unhappiness? Well, it's, an unreasonable and, and it's unreasonable and unfulfilling because when I'm spiritually apathetic, I'm failing to do what love or duty requires of me. And I'm treating something less important as more important than it truly is. For example, suppose I'm comfortably relaxing and my friend calls and really needs my help. Suppose there isn't a good reason for me not to help. What's holding me back is that I don't want to sacrifice my comfort for my friendship. I'm apathetic if I fail to love my friend by sacrificing my comfort for my friend. Acting out of love for my friend was the greater spiritual good I was avoiding by refusing to help him, choosing the lesser good of my own comfort. Even if I do help, spiritual apathy can still make me sluggish to do what love requires. And clearly this is not conducive to being a good friend. There's more. Aristotle says that human beings cannot stay long in a state of sadness. And since apathy makes us sad, and I'm thinking of the emotion of sadness now, we will either seek to escape from that which makes us sad or distract ourselves from thinking about it with something pleasant. These two responses are manifested by laziness and busyness. We usually associate spiritual apathy with laziness, with giving up in despair and doing nothing. The typical image of the slothful human being is the couch potato, right, watching television. But we can also seek to escape the source of our sadness by distracting ourselves with many activities. We can rush about doing many things and feel some measure of satisfaction at our supposed productivity. But this only avoids the more important issue we should face and increases our apathy. Good friendships persist because the friends are willing to face the hard things friendship requires them to face. Our avoidance behaviors can make spiritual apathy a gateway vice to other vices like greed, gluttony, and lust. Why these vices? Because they each involve things we find very pleasant, money, food, and sex. And we seek pleasure to remedy sadness. If by my apathetic behavior I avoid spiritual goods like my friendships with God and others because they require I make some sacrifice 
and I instead seek pleasures to diminish my sadness, I'll find over time that even the pleasures I seek as an escape become diminished. And that's because I'm using the pleasant thing to escape rather than wholeheartedly enjoying it. I want to make a qualification at this point. Sometimes there are actions that love requires that we don't have the energy or mental resources or other resources needed to address them well at the time. Avoiding them temporarily is not apathy, but just good sense. It's reasonable to wait for the right time to face difficult things. All right, in summary, spiritual apathy is damaging to friendships because by it I resist loving as friendship requires. I can become angry at those who call me to do good because of that, that reminder renews my sadness. But being a good friend and developing good friendships is crucial to happiness. So we should work against spiritual apathy. How can we work against spiritual apathy? First, recognize that friendships are crucial to happiness and that to be a good friend, one must sacrifice one's own comforts and pleasures for the good of the friend. Also, find ways to cultivate love for your friends when you see it's lacking. For example, even if you're not feeling it, doing the loving thing over time will help. The fourth century monk Evagrius in the Benedictine monastic tradition recommends practicing stability of place. This means that I stay put. I don't try to escape. I face the issue that is causing my sadness and resolve it to the best of my ability. It's very easy to escape today. We have a highly mobile society and an almost infinite number of amusements that are available literally at our fingertips. Sometimes it's reasonable to move on, but we should resist doing so when we're really running from what love calls us to do. This requires perseverance, which is another remedy for apathy. Evagrius writes in his eight thoughts that perseverance is the cure for apathy along with the execution of all tasks with great attention. It's not enough to stay put. A person must stay the course and resolutely attend to the task that will foster the love that is lacking. And in these ways, we can grow to be more loving and better friends. The next vice that undermines friendship that we'll consider, and this is uh, the second, we won't keep doing them, so hopefully it's not so depressing that you're worried, like, oh my goodness, this is going on forever, I'm getting feeling so, so terrible, um, <clears throat> is um, envy. Okay, so we're going to talk about envy. Aquinas defines envy as sadness at another's good, insofar as the good of another is seen as an impediment to my own excellence. Let's unpack this definition. Sadness here, like spiritual apathy, can refer to two different things. On the one hand, it can refer to the free, deliberate withdrawal from willing someone's good. And on the other hand, sadness can refer to the emotional distress of sadness. How can we be sad over another's good? In the case of envy, we perceive the truly good thing that causes sadness to be something bad. We are distressed when we perceive that someone else's getting some good thing diminishes our own excellence. Because we treat the other's good as something that takes away our own good, we treat what is good for them as bad for us. Hence, in envy, the other's good makes me sad. Consider an example. Suppose my friend gets a better grade than me on a test, and I feel saddened at her having gotten that grade. I begin to wish she hadn't got that grade, but instead that she'd gotten a lower grade than me. That's envy. What's going on? I'm upset because she got a higher grade than me. Perhaps her getting the grade makes me feel inferior to her. 
Perhaps I just really wanted to be the top of the class and she beat me to it. Either way, her higher score is the source of my distress, and so I begin to wish she had never got that grade, even though it was good for her to do so. I may even begin to make excuses for why I didn't score higher or attribute her good grade to luck when it was really a result of her hard work. The genuine good of another, for example, her growth, accomplishments, etc., contributes to her flourishing. And if I love her and at least have a basic goodwill toward her, I should rejoice in her good or at least not be pained by it and wish she didn't have it. But envy is contrary to this goodwill. When I envy another person, I withdraw from her good rather than willing it. I'm pained and distressed by her having the good and wish she didn't. Before unpacking the negative effects of this distress, it's worth distinguishing envy from something that is good but that seems like envy. Suppose a friend works hard over the summer and saves up enough money to go on a trip, and he posts his adventures on social media, and when I see them, I have a mixed reaction. On the one hand, I'm glad for him to have had the trip, but on the other, I feel sad that I haven't been on such a great trip. Is this envy? Aristotle says no, or excuse me, Aquinas says no, Um, and actually Aristotle too, they both make this distinction. They distinguish between envy and something that looks like it called zeal. Aquinas writes that zeal is when persons are saddened at the fact that they themselves do not have good things that their neighbors have. The zealous person then seeks to imitate the other so that he can attain that good as well. So I may work hard to save up so I can have a trip like my friend. So zeal is different from envy. And I'll try to go slow because it's a little subtle. Is different from envy for the envious person is saddened at the fact that their neighbor has the good thing that they themselves do not have. And zeal is sadness that I lack a good another has without sadness that the other hasn't. Does that make sense? In contrast, the envious is saddened that the other has it. So you can see the difference, right? And is glad even if the other loses it. Zeal is consistent with loving the other person and willing their good. But envy is inconsistent with loving the other. For the envious wishes the other didn't have the good. What are some of the bad effects of envy? The first is that it undermines charity. Charity towards others requires that we will their good, and it's a failure of charity to respond negatively to the real good of another. But that's exactly what happens in envy. For those who played sports, think of when you were young and you were taught good sportsmanship. At the end of the game, you went out to shake hands with the opposing team and tell them, good game. The poor sport was the one who sulked and fumed over the loss and wouldn't shake the hands of the other team. The poor sport refused to will the good of the other. The poor sport was in the grip of envy. Envy makes it harder to love the friend you envy and harder to be a good friend. It's difficult to be around people who are sources of sadness to us, and it's difficult to have friendships that are marked by a need to be superior to your friend. Envy also begets offspring such as gossip and detraction. The envious may attempt to tear down the person envied and show she's not as good as the others think. The envious person gossips when he disparages the one he envies in a secret or disguised way, and he tears them down openly by detraction. The envious does this because he thinks tearing down the other will remedy his sadness. Unfortunately, envy doesn't stop there. It can degenerate into hatred for the other person. In this context, 
To hate the other is to wish for the other's misfortune, absolutely speaking. For example, envy may start in an athlete because someone else fairly beats him for a starting spot on the team. Hate results when he not only wishes that the other wouldn't have that spot, but wishes uh, that bad things would happen to the other person altogether. This leads the envier to exalt or rejoice at the other's adversity, say if the other seems to get a serious injury or something bad happens to him, or to distress if the envied person prospers, say if upon further examination the doctor reveals the injury isn't serious or if something really good happens to him. The hateful person is worse than the envious because they are totally set against the other's good rather than just one way like the envious. How can we avoid envy and work against it? Envy stems from a comparative sense of self-value, to use the Young's phrase for it, or an excessive desire to be the best or a combination. To combat envy, we have to disconnect our own sense of value, as a, having self-value, from a winning comparison with others. A comparative uh, sense of self-value is quite easy to come by in our culture, probably especially in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We see the material rewards that often go to the winners. If we don't have a clear sense for what gives us value, we can take false consolation in the thought that at least we're better than the next guy. A more robust sense of self-value will be rooted in one's own intrinsic value stemming from one's nature, unique gifts and traits that one has received, and from being loved by God. These sources of value don't depend on winning comparisons with others. A second remedy is to pay attention to and cultivate concern for the goods that we share with others rather than competitive goods. For example, when I share knowledge or an experience of beauty with someone, I don't lose any of my own knowledge or my experience is not in any way diminished. In fact, it's typically enhanced. I can't envy a person if her having a good doesn't diminish my having it too. A final final remedy is to practice good zeal. Focus on what you can to do to become better and try to love the one you're tempted to envy and imitate him or her so that you can be worthy of the good that he or she has. I'll now conclude this talk with some applications to building bridges in a community. A bridge is built to connect two separate areas. Building bridges in a sense of connecting people that are separate requires, most of all, charity or willing the good of the other for his or her own sake. Such goodwill is the basis of any true concord. It helps us to see the other as a person whose need for flourishing is the same as our own. It helps us to avoid only seeing the other according to their usefulness or harmfulness to us or our projects or their pleasantness or painfulness to us. A bridge is stable. It does not run away when the storms come. We must practice stability and combat spiritual apathy if we're to earn the trust of others as someone to be counted on. As we saw, envy poisons relationships. It's especially tempting when we treat others as merely, merely as rivals. They may be a rival in various ways, but remembering that they still have intrinsic value and are worthy of love can help check the impulse towards, say, gossip and detraction. Finally, we should cultivate intellectual charity. Intellectual charity is when we presume the most goodwill and intelligence of the other as we reasonably can. We do not assume bad motives. We do not assume unintelligence or irrationality. 
We shouldn't make hasty judgments about a person based on a few experiences, but instead give them the benefit of the doubt. Finally, we should strive to be people who are good friends. Such a person will help others and his or her community to flourish. Such friendships will alleviate loneliness, and through friendship, we can flourish together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.